Today I thought as we start talking about living in the last days, um, I want to just spend some time talking about where are we. And um, this isn't so much of a sermon as it is more of a discussion, so feel free to interject or ask questions. But um, we're going to be looking at some concepts from, from prophecy and uh, from the spirit of prophecy to help us to sort of just know where we're at in the stream of time. Because I really think there's some, some, some foundational concepts that we, we want to be clear on or agreed upon as we, as we talk about getting ready for Jesus' coming, being ready for Jesus' coming. You know, um, as Jane can undoubtedly attest, uh, my, one of my uh, major hobbies is really aviation. I love everything to do with aviation. I always have. My dad was a pilot, and um, for many years, even though I wasn't flying, I had a... Uh, uh, some thought was a little bit of a weird habit of... Um, I read every crash report of every plane crash and every accident. And, and um, I remember I was sitting on a flight one time with, I was in, uh, I was with the, I was ta- sitting next to the, the cargo manager for the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And um, we were talking about some recent plane crash. I don't remember what it was. And I, after I talked about it for a while, he said, you need to get a hobby. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong with my hobby? I enjoy studying plane crashes. Um, um, but... As a pilot, there's, there's a couple of embarrassing things you can do. Um, uh, one is to li- land without putting your landing gear down. That's one of the more embarrassing things. Um, um, another is uh, probably more serious, and that's uh, running out of gas. Um, they say that's one thing that insurance companies never forgive. Um, once you've done that, it's pretty bad news for you insur- insurance-wise. Um, but getting lost ranks up pretty high there. And... Um, you know, last January, this is something that happens on a periodic basis. Last January, uh, there was a Southwest Airlines uh, flight 4103 that was headed to Branson, Missouri. They were in contact with the controllers at the Branson Airport, um, which is a good-sized airport with a control tower, seven, over 7,000-foot runway. And um, the uh, audio recordings released... Um, uh, they uh, demonstrate there was some confusion going on. Um, the pilot said, I assume I'm not at your airport. Um, the controller said, um, 4103, have you landed? And uh, after a pause, the pilot returned, yeah. And um, the controllers then started talking among themselves, um, called, and called the center and, and said, did you watch 4103 land? They said, yes. Did they... He says he didn't land at my airport. And um, the other controller said, you're kidding, right? And um, the reality was that this Southwest Airlines flight had landed. You can see maybe on this section a little bit. This is the Branson Airport with 7,000-foot runway. He had landed here with about a 3,700-foot runway, 129 people on board. And somehow the 737 managed to stop before the end of the runway. Um, Thankfully, he had um, put it down pretty close to the beginning of the runway. And there was no injuries, and um, with no passengers on it, the next morning the the plane took off and went to its appropriate place. Um, Getting lost isn't a very good thing um, when you're flying. Knowing where you are and where you are going uh, are the two prerequisites if you're going to be pilot in command. And, you know, um, I was thinking about that as an illustration for where we are 
um, I think it's important for us to know where we are in the stream of time, how, how the, um, the, the layout of the landscape is in, in, our, um, in, our, uh, in our experience. So a little bit of a timeline here, and I want to do something that, that will hopefully give you a little bit of an illustration how I understand where we are in the prophetic timeline. And um, if I were just give a list here of some of the major events in human history, Usher's chronology puts creation at 4004 B.C. There's nothing inspired about that, but that is, um, that is the, uh, the chronology that Usher used um, using the genealogies of the Bible. Um, he arrived at that, at that date. Um, it might be more fair to say the fall since there's not a, a whole lot of information about how long there was between creation and the fall. But 4004 B.C., the flood in 2350 B.C., some um, 1,700 years after creation, almost a third of the world's history elapsed during the antediluvian world um, before the flood. Um, we, almost, we often forget that. It wasn't very many generations because people were living um, so long. Um, you know, Noah and, uh, well, really, Noah would have known Methuselah. And uh, Methuselah died the year of the flood. So, um, so it was really only two lifespans, um, but it was a third of Earth's history, almost a third of Earth's history. Um, Abraham, um, not too long after the flood, Abraham would um, be tapped by God as an instrument to preserve truth on this earth. Now, Abraham and Noah were contemporaries. Noah lived about, um, well, he lived some, for quite some time after the flood. And uh, for some 75 years, Abraham and Noah's life would have overlapped. The Exodus would have taken place around 1500 B.C. Um, David would have been about 1000 B.C. Jesus, of course, came um, around the uh, transition between the years of uh, B.C. and A.D. and um, was baptized in the year 27 A.D., anointed as the Messiah, became, began his ministry. The rise of the little horn took place in 538. The dark day in 1780, marking the uh, beginning of the signs of the end. Um, if we were to look at that a little more closely, we could also argue that the Great Lisbon Earthquake in 1755 was included by Jesus, or by yeah, Jesus, or John, in the Revelation um, in chapter 6. Um, but there, there, there is in the Gospels, and we won't take time to look at these, in the, in, the, in, the, in the three of the Gospels, there is the same sequence, the same order of events. Signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and then the sign of the Son of Man of the second coming. That same sequence takes place in the book of Revelation. So there, really there's four in the New Testament of the same sequence that takes place. And um, Revelation includes in chapter 6 the, the great earthquake before the, the sun is dark and the moon will not give her light and the stars will fall from heaven. And then the coming of the Son of Man. Um, the judgment begins, as we understand, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the end of the 2300-day prophecy in 1844. And we're living in... 2015. Now, this is, a, this is a cause of concern and, and maybe even frustration for some who say, you know, why were these signs so far, so long ago, the dark day in 1780, um, the stars falling in, in 1833, um, here we are in 2015, and this doesn't, these don't seem like signs of the end anymore because it's been so long. And, and um, I, I hear a variety of different interpretations or reinterpretations of prophecy that seek to seek to give some urgency to the times we're living in based upon some prophetic periods or signs that we see taking place. And um, to illustrate how I do believe that these are and were the signs of the end and, and fulfilled the prophecy as, as, we've, um, as we've received it, I want to just do a little bit of an interactive 
illustration here. Can we do that? I need 12 volunteers. We're going to do this along this wall. So some of you have to turn around a little bit or else volunteer. And um, if, if, you, if you don't mind, what I want, I want someone to hold the tape measure here. Actually, to hold this end. And um, you're going to represent creation. And then we're going to go. It's a 30-foot tape. And we're going to go 30 feet out, and that's going to be our present day. Okay, so I just need two volunteers to start with to get this, get this show on the road, I guess, or on the wall. Um, that's fine. And I'll need some others as well. So if we were to put the flood on this, we would have to go eight feet out. So someone, someone go out. I'll, I'll, I think it's going to be easier, ultimately, if they stand behind you. Just keep going out. As, I think it's... Do we have a 30-foot wall here? Maybe not. It's going to be close. It's going to be close. Yeah. Okay, that's 30 feet. That's, okay. Yes. She is at the time of the end, definitely. Okay, it says caution. Okay, so um, now the flood is eight, eight feet. Um, let's go on down to Abraham. Someone needs to be Abraham and stand at 10 feet. Now I need David. No, the Exodus. The Exodus is at 12 feet, 6 inches. So just put your finger on that sign if you can stand behind it or on that measurement. Um, it'd probably be easier for everyone to see. I need the Exodus then at, uh, no, that is the Exodus, David at 15 feet. Um, who will be David? All right. So you can see right there we're, we're already about halfway through Earth's history as we know it today. Um, Jesus came around 20 feet. That would be, you know, 27 A.D. So I need someone to be Jesus. I need someone to be the little horn. Someone with a, a smile on their face today. Have eyes like the eyes of a man. Very good. And um, that's uh, at 15, I'm um, sorry, that's at 23 feet. Little horn, the rise little horn. And um, the dark day would come at 28 feet and 10 inches. 28 feet and 10 inches. That's going to be... Okay, you should be able to pull it all the way out to 30 feet. Yeah, it won't, it won't hurt you. There we go. So the dark day, 28 feet and, and 8 inches. That's good. Um, now let's look at the time of the end. That's, um, that's going to be 28 feet and 11 inches. I need someone down there. Um, the time of the end. We might need you to curve around the corner just a little bit there. Otherwise, it's, it's going to get a little... Okay, that's 28 feet. Oh, if we can, if we can pull the whole history down. Um, now we have the stars falling. I need someone to represent the falling of the stars. Who wants to be the stars falling? Um, as you can see, we need two more after this. Well, one more. Judgment begins. So, the stars fall at 29 feet and one inches. 29 feet and one inches. And um, the judgment, 1844, begins, the last person we need at, uh, well, maybe, yeah, Tomoko can just put her, put her hand out. It's going to be at 29 feet and 2 inches. Yeah. Okay. So what I want you to see here is that those signs actually did happen fairly recently when you look at the whole scheme of time, right? Um, we are living in the last days of Earth's history. Um, we, we sometimes think in our mindset, because we live 70 years, or if we're Adventists living in Loma Linda, 100 years maybe, um, 
We live this period of time for which for us 150 years ago seems like a long time ago. But when you look at the big scheme of things, when you look at the, the, the history of the earth as we know it, 6,000 years of history or so, um, these are fairly recent events, aren't they? They're marking a, a time fairly recently. Okay, thank you very much. You all can, can return. And just be careful as you wind it up. That should be fine. I really appreciate your help um, with that illustration. I hope it gets sort of something in your mind as far as these signs being, in fact, in the last days. Um, I believe that we're living in, um, in these last days. Now, let's just do a little bit of a timeline here, if we could, and talk a little bit more. This is, this is sort of a, a, mac, a macro view, thank you, of the Earth's history. I want us to do, these are smaller, so it may be hard for you to see. I want us to just go through some prophetic events that have been, um, have been uh, shared with us post uh, New Testament time. So when we just look at the prophecies of Christ and of, of, the, of Daniel and Revelation, um, we come up with a number, a sequence of events that will take place. And let me just stand over here on this side and let's just talk about them very quickly. We, of course, knew the, the destruction of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD. Paul said there would be false teachers who would rise in the church. He said, after my departure, grievous wolves shall uh, come, not sparing the flock, right? And so there was this falling away. Second Thessalonians talks about the, the falling away will come. In fact, there were some people in Paul's day that were saying, Jesus is coming soon. We know he's coming soon. He promised he'd return. He's coming soon. And Paul said, actually, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he said, don't be, don't, don't be troubled, don't be alarmed, because the second coming can't happen until the falling away takes place uh, happens first, and the man of sin has to be revealed. And right now, he even seemed to, he seemed to have a pretty clear understanding of the, um, of the taking away of the Roman Empire for the re and replacing by the papal Roman Empire. The pagan and the papal Roman Empire is being changed. He says, right now there's someone restraining who's going to continue to restrain until he's taken out of the way. Then the man of sin is going to be revealed. And um, in fact, that's exactly what happened. Of course, it's exactly what Daniel predicts would happen. So whether Paul received that by special revelation or whether Paul simply as a prophet understood the, the sealed prophecies of the book of Daniel, I don't know, but he seemed to have an understanding that the falling away would take place. It had to take place. There would be the rise of the Antichrist, and we, we talked about that in 538 um, B.C. as being the, the date of that. There was predicted the Reformation. Um, we, read, we read about the Revel Reformation um, in a number of places, um, probably the most specifically in, Revel in Daniel chapter 11. talks about the um, trying and purifying of those who are um, 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 made white and so forth. Um, but there's, uh, he said there would be that persecution until the time of the end, if you read there um, in Daniel chapter 11. Um, I don't remember exactly the verse, from somewhere around um, probably 30 or so. Um, and here you have um, the, also the predicting of the, the deadly wound, the end of the 1260 days. We understand that is taking place in 1798, when during the French Revolution, Napoleon, um, Napoleon's General Berthier marched on the city of Rome. They found the Pope in praying in, in the basilica. In fact, I think he was in the, um, in the chapel there, the nave of the side. And um, they, the soldiers noisily clamored into the into the into the very uh, 
church there and took the Pope captive. The, the, the whole idea was that France was saying there's no such thing as God, and so they did away with religion. They reclaimed all the property that the church owned in France, and they said there's no such thing as a church. There's no such thing as God. We can prove it because God's ambassador, the God on earth, has just been captured by our, our general. And um, the Bible predicted this as a deadly wound, and in fact it happened exactly 1260 years after the last of those three tribes were uprooted, right? Um, fulfilling the 1260-year prophecy that we, um, that we all understand as Adventists. Um, now, after this, we see that there's going to be the time of the end. And again, we date, the only way I know to date the time of the end is that, is that passage there in Daniel chapter 11, um, where it says, I'll just give you the verse in case you're interested in it. Um, this is the only way that I, I know, maybe there's some other verses that our early Adventist pioneers used, but it's the only one that I've come across. Um, to give a date for the time of the end, when the book of, Rev book of Daniel should be unsealed and so forth. If you look at Daniel chapter 11, it's, um, it's going to be verse 33. Um, um, verse 35, actually, it starts in verse 33. And those are sort of the verses that talk about the, 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 um, the Reformation in verse 33 and 34. Verse 35 says, And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the, what does it say? Time of the end. So this time of persecution would, would end uh, when the time of the end began. And so we understand that 1260, the end of 1260 is the beginning of the time of the end. Um, that's where we get that, that date from. So we go on and we talk about after, the, um, after the, this time, the deadly wound, um, the signs of the sun, moon, and stars. And this is a little bit tricky. Some, some might criticize Adventist scholarship and prophetic understanding for this purpose, but um, you remember that that the dark day actually happened before the time of the end, 1780 versus 1798. And so how do you explain that? Well, the way I understand it is that Jesus said that the time of persecution, the time of persecution would end, um, it would, the, except for the, uh, sorry, for the elect's sake, Jesus said, those days would be shortened. And what we see is as Protestant Germany gained power, as America became a relief valve where persecuted Christians could flee, actual persecution in Europe came to an end before 1798. There weren't very many people burning at the stake and so forth um, after the middle of the 18th century. So that actual period of persecution is shortened and immediately after that per time of tribulation, Jesus said the sun would be dark and the moon would not give her light and the stars would fall from heaven. And we saw how if you looked on that timeline, all those events were happening in just a few inches, very closely together. Um, while it seems like a lot of time for us, it's not really that much time between them. So we'd see the sign, the sun, the moon, the stars, the dark day of May 1917-80, the sun, moon coming up as blood the same night, um, stars falling November 18, 1833, a fascination with prophecy. I don't have a slide in this presentation, but I've got a chart of all the different um, books and articles, major articles that were written on the uh, subject of Bible prophecy, and there was an explosion after 1798. It's fascinating how many, how many of those books and articles. There were more during probably about 10 or 15 years period of time, both on this side of the Atlantic, on the other side of the Atlantic. There are more books and art, major articles written on prophecy than had been written during all the previous 1,500 years of Christian history. There's no question. There was just a fascination with prophecy. And this, in, this in fact, was one of the signs then. The Bible says that knowledge shall be increased and many shall run to and fro. Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 12, and verse, is it verse 4? 
So the, the, um, the, the verb there to run to and fro has often been perceived by, by um, Adventist expositors. We've often preached that, you know, we're living in the age of travel and, you know, we can be in London tonight and we can just be, you know, uh, we're, we're very mobile. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a, perhaps a sign of the end. But the, the, the verb is really there in Daniel 12, verse 4. It's many shall leaf forwards and backwards. It's more of a study of the books you know, and, and the unsealing of the book that it's still talking about. There's going to be a study of prophecy that is in itself a sign of the times in which we're living. And so there would be um, the sign as we studied, of course, the sanctuary and the, uh, the prophecy. They came to understand that Jesus was coming. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed in 1844. Um, and uh, by the way, um, if you study early Advent history, uh, Millerite history, you will learn, as I have, that there, is, there was very little dispute among the Christians, the Protestant Christians, as to whether Miller was right on his time prophecy. Um, time was not the question when they debated about the time prophecies uh, or, the, or the prophecies of Daniel. What was at issue was whether or not Jesus was coming again. The other expositors, other Christian expositors in the same period, um, his greatest critics, said that the sanctuary was going to be cleansed in Jerusalem, the Turks or the Muslims were going to be driven out of the Holy Land, and the sanctuary was going to be rebuilt. That was their prediction of what would happen in 1844. Um, uh, there was, there was uh, in fact, um, it was, I think it was Professor Campbell from, from Oxford, Oxford or Harvard, um, the professor who was an outspoken critic of William Miller. He said, um, anyone who attacks Miller on his time attacks him on his strongest point um, because it was, it was very difficult to get around the time prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. And um, to, if I could just explain that to you very briefly, it's because in Daniel chapter 8 there is no beginning point for the time prophecy. It just says in Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. You remember that this was a great puzzlement to Daniel. He actually fainted when... Um, when, Daniel, when Gabriel told Daniel that, there was, uh, that the time prophecy was true, Daniel fainted and was sick for many days and he couldn't understand it. He was very puzzled by this. For one thing, he was concerned that this might be the uh, prolonging of the Babylonian captivity. And um, if it was just 2,300 literal days, I think that that could have been, that could have been uh, you know, they could have suffered that. But um, Daniel was concerned that it was a very, these were prophetic time and this was a, could be a very long um, desolation of Jerusalem that, that the Gabriel was talking about. And you remember, it was some 15 years later, Daniel was still worried about this. He still didn't understand it. And he's praying about it in Daniel chapter 9. And he comes and he's confessing the sins of his people and of himself, of his nation. He's saying, we have sinned. And he says, you know, don't, you can tell it's very clear that this is what he's concerned about. He's actually studying the prophet Jeremiah, it says in Daniel chapter 9. And the first few verses, he's studying how, how God told the prophet Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70 years. And now he's saying, have mercy on your city. Forgive us for our sins. We haven't turned as we should. Beautiful prayer for revival and reformation by a man who's not pointing his finger, but he's including himself in the problem. Um, oh, I tell you, Daniel chapter 9 is such an amazing example of, of what we need today um, within the Adventist church. Less finger pointing and more just repentance, genuine repentance, and, and um, including of ourselves in the problem. And 
At any rate, here you have Daniel 9, Gabriel comes back, and there's several clues. We don't have time to go into all this today. Uh, uh, I, could, I teach a whole class on this when we study Adventist heritage at Southern. But um, there are several clues in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel is talking about the vision of Daniel chapter 8. One, he comes back and he says, consider the vision. Well, what could he talk about? Uh, what vision would he be talking about? Um, he, Daniel says he saw the angel who he'd seen in the vision at the beginning. He's obviously referring to a previous vision. He only makes sense to talk about. Um, Daniel fainted at the explanation of time. When Gabriel comes to explain to Daniel, he says, consider the vision. He begins explaining time. He says, 70 weeks are cut off or determined for your people. Well, you can only cut time off of 70 weeks of time off of a longer portion of time, right? And since there was no starting date for the 2300 days, it's only reasonable for us to understand that the starting date of that time that's cut off is the starting date also for the 2300 days. That's how we understand that. And so when, Dan, when William Miller is studying this, he came to the very, honestly, it's pretty much an unimpeachable conclusion. Because let me, let me take one step further. The 70 weeks are fulfilled, right? So, and, and we see they were fulfilled a, a, with a day equaling a year in that prophecy. Um, this is something that most Christians agree upon, whether you're futurist or, or preterist or historicist. Basically, all, all Christians believe on the, in the 70 week prophecy. And, so, and they believe in the day for year principle in this prophecy even though they may deny it elsewhere. So we have the 70 weeks full, being fulfilled a day equals a year, 490 years. And um, as they're being fulfilled, we have the, uh, we have the pr prediction of the wall being rebuilt and the, and the temple being rebuilt in the first seven weeks. We have the prediction of the, the Messiah coming, the anointed one, in um, the end of the 69th week. We have the middle of the 70 we 70th week Messiah being cut off, right, um, for the sins of the people. And during, the, during that last week, um, there would be um, the, the sanctuary in heaven would be anointed and so forth and so on. There's all these prophecies that were, were given. And the, the amazing thing is that when we look at that prophecy, what we can do is we can look back and we can see that we can see that those prophecies were fulfilled exactly as God said they'd be fulfilled. Um, we can study the book of John, for example, and we can see the different Passovers that Jesus went through, and we can demonstrate that it's after three and a half years after his, his baptism that he's, he's um, sacrificed as the, um, as, the, uh, as the sacrifice for our sins. Um, we, can, we can see that it's the three and a half years later, the end of the 70 weeks, 34 A.D., that... Um, that Stephen is stoned and probation, the 70 weeks that had been given for the Jews to stop their sinning and rebellion um, has ended and they haven't stopped their sinning and rebellion. And so what happens? The gospel goes to the Gentiles. And immediately after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, the, those, the, 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 there's a persecution in Jerusalem and the disciples of, of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, are scattered abroad and they went everywhere preaching the word. And um, you have Paul preaching now, there's neither no longer Jew or Gentile, um, that that all are one in Christ Jesus, that, that um, those who are Christ's are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, because no longer is Israel God's favored people. Um, no longer have they been given the opportunity to take the message of truth to the world. Um, there's now a new body of people, the Christian church, and they've been given that responsibility and they'll be held accountable for that. God's always had a people with His message for the time. And um, so what happens is when you understand the link 
between Daniel 8 and 9, as Miller did and as we as historicist Adventists believe, um, when you understand that link between Daniel 8 and 9, you understand, therefore, that the 70 weeks are part of the 2300-day prophecy. So what God did is He gave, you know, when you go to buy a house, you put, a, you put money in escrow. What does that do? What does that tell the, the seller when you have money in escrow? Um, tells you they're serious about it, right? And um, that's money that's real money. You know, you, you actually can do this. You actually have the finances to do this. And you make your, um, you make your, your down payment. Well, well, in many ways, the 70 weeks are a down payment on the 2300-day prophecy. In other words, there's no way, when you, when you realize the, the 2300 days includes um, 457 B.C. when it begins, and then it includes 27 A.D. when Jesus is baptized, it includes 31 A.D. when, when Jesus is, is uh, crucified, it includes 34 A.D. when the 70 weeks ends, all you have to do is take 40, 490 years out of 2300 days, that leaves you 1810, right? You add 1810 to 34 A.D., and where does that take you? It takes you down to 1844. So you understand how this is not, this was not negotiable. I mean, his critics didn't even criticize him about the time because you have evidence that your starting date is right. You have evidence that your interpretive principle, the day for year, is right. There is no more certain time prophecy in all of, in all of Scripture than the 2300-day prophecy because of the way God gave it. Um, with a, with a down payment of 490 years for us to see, okay, do we have the right principles? Do we have the right starting date? And in fact, we do. And so this is a very, very, this is a very, very central um, doctrine. And um, one of the things I've, I've thought through the years, I've, I've wanted to do further study and maybe, maybe do a doctorate in church history. I have a master's in church history. One of the things that I'd like to do is simply look at how the American and other Protestant seminaries and theologians dealt with with the prophecies after 1844, because they were all in agreement that something was going to happen in 1844. And um, there are two, there, there's more than one factor, but I think that the, the great disappointment and the, uh, the, uh, the failure of 1844 in their minds um, is, is one of the reasons why uh, the other Protestant denominations have moved away from historicism as a model for interpreting Bible prophecy. So Adventism stands alone. Um, as the major, the only major denomination remaining that uses historicism as a as the the principles of prophetic interpretation, um, and um, most have moved either to preterism or futurism. And I will say this: even in Adventism, the principles of historicism are under attack, because Adventism Adventists aren't taught um, very clearly. I don't think the principles that we once believed, and so they're open to the um, the confusion of other principles that come in, and um, so here we have we have the cleansing of the sanctuary and the judgment. That was a little bit of a of a, a side, I guess. Um, we have the the rise of the remnant. Um, uh, Revelation chapter twelve and verse seventeen says that after this this time of the the woman hiding in the wilderness, there's going to be a remnant which reemerges, right? And the remnant is going to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Um, so there's a rise of the remnant that takes place after this time as well. It's going to have a worldwide message. We read about that in Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 and onward. The three angels' messages, it's to, to proclaim to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And um, we also see in prophecy there's going to be a moral decay in society. There's going to be the love of many waxing cold, as it was in the days of Noah. 
it says. And we remember what it's like in the days of Noah. The thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually, Genesis tells us, right? And so that's the way it's going to be in the last days. We can expect these things to happen. There's going to be the healing of the deadly wound. Now, um, we saw that, we, we, we recognize that the... Um, you know, the, tr the pact that took place in 1929 began that as the Vatican was ceded back its property and so forth. Um, we, we, we pointed to that in, in the, the days of President Reagan when, when he appointed an ambassador to the Vatican as though it were another nation or something that in the United, Nation, United States needed formal um, uh, uh, relationship with. Um, we, we see this he healing of the deadly wound taking place in a very, very rapid way today. Um, and um, I don't know exactly, there, there's yet unfulfilled prophecy, so we can't say what's going to happen or if it's completely healed or anything like that. But the fact is we see on almost a daily basis, we see something about the, the rise of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church on American thought, American politics, on it, it just all over the world we see this happening. Um, Protestantism uniting with Catholicism. Once again, I don't know how many of you just read the headlines. Um, we were talking earlier this week about some of the distractions we have in modern life, and sometimes we can get addicted to reading the news and the news feeds and the infinite feeds that keep going and going, and you just, there's lots you can read. But when you look at these Rick Warrens and other megachurch pastors who are coming out in favor of the Pope as being a visible head of Christianity, when you look at Protestantism in America being willing to unite with Roman Catholicism on matters of of agreement. Um, we as Seventh-day Adventists see this as a fulfillment of prophecy because over a hundred years ago, now let's, listen, <laughs> today we read the great controversy and we say, yeah, of course. But, but my, my parents' generation, my mom grew up in, in a, in a French-Italian Catholic home in New Orleans. Catholic kids did not play with Protestant kids. America was very different just 50 years ago, just 60 years ago. You didn't have, I mean, it was a big deal when, um, when uh, Kennedy ran for president because a lot of Americans said, we don't think we want a Catholic president. There was tremendous, um, uh, I guess we might say, prejudice even against the Irish Catholics and other immigrants. And here you are uh, half a century later with the vast majority of Congress, the vast majority of the Supreme Court being Roman Catholic, and um, the thought leaders in America today being largely dominated by Catholic thought. And I'm not Catholic-phobic. I'm not trying to say that they're not good people that are contributing to our society in the best way they know how. I think in some ways we as Protestants have been negligent in not engaging in the issues of our society and the problems of our society and being, thought, being thinkers. Um, somehow we've, we've abdicated our responsibility. Um, there's the... Uh, there's a professor at, at Notre Dame, a Protestant professor at Notre Dame, who's um, Noel, I think is his name, Mark Noel, I believe, who has written a couple of books, and one of them is called The Scandal of the Protestant Mind, and um, how, how Protestants have, have pretty much just abandoned the intellectual um, solutions of society's problems. And um, the Catholics have remained engaged. And it's not just because there's a sinister plot. You know, there's, there's other reasons behind it. But yet we see it as a fulfillment of prophecy, don't we? We see what's happening in our society as being a fulfillment of, of prophecy. So what we see then happening is that there's going to be a... Um, we, we saw that there's, there's this moral decay in society. And the moral decay in society, according to the 
prophecies of uh, Revelation and expounded upon by Ellen White, the, the moral decay in society becomes a great source of consternation for the Christian world. And there eventually, becomes, there eventually comes a revival that says we need to get back to God. Now, where, what precipitates this revival? According to, especially the Great Controversy and the Spirit of Prophecy, what precipitates the great revival among Protestantism in America and uh, the uniting of Protestantism and Catholicism is natural disasters that are viewed as the judgments of God. And um, in my view, in my understanding of the timeline, that's really where we're at. Um, if, you, if you've seen the, the, um, the groundswell of Christian reaction to the Supreme Court ruling on marriage, you know that all is really needed is some very severe natural disasters for America to, to rise up and say, we're, not, we're finished with this secularism that puts God on the back burner and, 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 and brings the judgments of God upon us. Um, uh, Dalton, our little airport outside of Dalton, Georgia, is, is just probably five miles outside of town or so, and you pass a church on the way there. It's a Baptist church. It's not one of the main churches, but it's a little Baptist church, and they have a marquee out on the sign. And it's the, the, the current one, um, at least the last time I saw it, a couple days ago, it said, God, please bring the USA to its knees. That's the mindset. So what do you think their, their thought is going to be when natural disasters happen? I mean, this isn't something I'm making up. This isn't the Great Controversy. This is something that we've known for a long time. Great Controversy predicted these things when they were pretty much unthinkable. By the way, Ellen White and, and, and Revelation 13 predicted the... Um, I shouldn't say it the other way. Revelation 13, Ellen White expounds upon it, um, predicted the rise of America as a sole superpower in the last days, something that would have been just as unthinkable when the great controversy was being written um, 150, 200 years ago. Um, there, the, the idea that America would be more powerful than the British Empire, I mean, it would be just inconscionable. Um, but, of course, the Bible was right. And, um, and the book Great Controversy was right as well. I believe Ellen White is a prophet of God. Um, so natural disasters will lead to revival. And I put that revival in quotation marks because that revival is a revival that says we need to get back to God, but they're going to do it by getting back to Roman Catholicism's version of, of Christianity and especially Rome's Sabbath, um, Sunday worship. Now, you know, we've always known this, but what's phenomenal now is when you look at what's happening, and we all spend a lot of time at this, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. I won't spend a lot of time on it. Um, what we see happening today is that um, some of the pieces of the puzzle that we never had an idea of how it would happen, we knew it was going to happen, we didn't know how it was going to happen, some of those pieces are becoming apparent. Who would have thought that climate change would be the vehicle by which the papacy seeks to take over the economic system of the world? Who would have thought? I mean, even a year ago, you would have asked me, and I would have thought, you know, I saw Sunday coming. I saw the natural disasters and Protestants. But who would have thought that the Pope would use climate change as a vehicle? By the way, it's brilliant. Because even the secular people who are irreligious, who are atheists, are going to unite behind this banner of we've got to bring these rogue nations who are using capitalism to destroy the planet into subjection. I mean, he's published a whole encyclical where he lays it out, where he says, you know, we need an international tribunal with a moral authority 
that will tax the nations that are that are that are using the most you know greenhouse or emissions and all that and and will tax them according to their capacity to pay in other words, if they're wealthy or not and according to their destruction of the planet and we'll give it to you know we'll give that money take money from them and give it to the causes that will help preserve the planet I mean who would have thought but we still don't know exactly how it's all going to happen I'm just saying these are these are remarkable in, uh, um, developments that as you read the news almost every single day you hear the drum beats of prophecy being fulfilled you just see things happening prophecy being fulfilled. Now, um, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that have to happen after this. There's, a, there's a natural disasters that lead to revival. There's an image of the beast which is formed, and that's, that's when, um, when church becomes combined with state, once again. That's the, it's, a, it's like a photocopy of the beast in the old days, which was a union of church and state. An image is now put into the current time, a union of church and state. And it's when I can imagine, again, this is my, this is my uninspired um, imaginings that could very well be wrong, but I can imagine such a disgust coming, uh, you know, when, when Congress has an approval rating overall of 3%, people are looking, uh, and when, when Donald Trump skyrockets the poll, <laughs> people are disgusted with politics as usual. They're looking for solutions, okay? And when, when, when government proves to be ineffective, they're going to turn to another source to try to bring solutions. And an image of the beast is formed. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but um, you can see how it could happen very easily, very quickly. Um, Sunday laws, of course, will be enacted, and um, those will be, there'll be progression from simply keeping Sunday as a rest day, which we can go along with. We can hold services on Sunday and evangelistic meetings and Bible studies, and we don't have to be out flaunting it and mowing our yard or whatever on Sunday morning. But when they begin to make it illegal for us to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, that is, um, that is something we can't go along with, right? And um, eventually there's a death decree. Of course, the death decree is never enacted. And that's not to say that there's not going to be martyrs in the last days. But the day which is settled upon where there'll be a worldwide extermination of all these people that are bringing God's judgments upon them, upon the earth, that day and hour which is settled upon will not be fulfilled because um, prophecy is pretty clear. Probation closes before that time. And... Um, and there's no martyrs after the close of probation. God's people are actually delivered. So you have here, the, you have the, the Sunday laws, the seal of God, sealing God, and there's some intermingling of events taking place here. The latter rain, the loud cry of the fourth angel, demonstration of God's character. Um, by the way, the, the, fourth, the, the, the three angels' messages are given with a loud voice to the whole world, right? Um, the fourth angel has a very similar message as far as come out of for my people, Babylon's fallen, become a habitation of evil spirits and every unclean bird and all the rest. Um, very similar message, but it's not given with a loud voice only. It's given with great light. And the difference is, for 160-some, 170 years, um, Adventism has been preaching the three angels' message with a loud voice, but really without the character to back it up, the character of Christ. And that's what lightens the earth with the glory of God, um, is when Adventism has the message with the character. That's the loud cry. That's, that's the latter rain. And and, um, and that's, that's what we need, and we're gonna, that's what we're, we're hoping to talk about here in just a, a few moments. Um, we're out of time, aren't we? What, is it 10.30 we end or 10 o'clock? This schedule says 10.30. Which one are we? 10.30. 10.30. Okay. I'm sorry. I had a 
momentary fright there. I thought I'd already gone over. Um, so here we have, we have the last days. The plagues fall, of course, after the close of probation. I should have put the close of probation in there somewhere. Um, and by the way, let me, just, let me just share with you how I understand the close of probation. Um, there will, will be a time when the probation is closed. But it's not as though God says, all right, time's up. The close of probation happens when the last person has made a final decision. Um, the harvest of the earth is ripe. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. When the last person has made a final decision, um, then probation is closed. Many people's probation will have been closed for a long time before that. In other words, our characters are already sealed. We've already decided for one side or the other. And uh, nothing that God could do could change our, our minds. And after the close of probation, we see the plays begin to fall, and we see that the, nothing God does can change their minds because even when the judgments of God fall, they don't repent. And um, it's not until the time of the sixth plague, um, another whole study in itself, the sixth plague is poured upon the river Euphrates. And remember, Babylon is the city that sat on the river Euphrates. Do you remember how Cyrus conquered Babylon? He dried up the river Euphrates and entered through the gates, right? The kings of the east, Cyrus is a type of Christ. Well, spiritual Babylon also sits on the river Euphrates. Revelation 17, 15 tells us the waters upon the, which the horse sitteth are peoples, multitudes, tongues, and nations, right? So it's, it's the people represents that water. In the sixth plague, the river, the sixth vial is poured upon the river Euphrates and the, and the river is dried up. This is when people realize they've been deceived by Babylon. And um, in the spirit of prophecy, it tells us that they will go to their ministers and they will say, why did you tell us smooth things? Why did you teach us these things? And she said um, that they will pull them limb from limb and blood will run in the streets. I tell you, it seems convenient in a time of peace to follow what the crowd is doing. Um, but, you know, we sometimes ask the question in an evangelistic series, would you rather have the wrath of man or the wrath of God? The reality is, friends, that if you're an unfaithful minister, you're going to have both the wrath of man and the wrath of God. <laughs> it's not an either or. And um, I tell you what, I'd rather have the wrath of men any day and be, be at peace with God. Um, and um, as that sixth plague takes place, of course, God's people are delivered because the people now realize they're lost. Those people they've been trying to hunt and persecute, they are saved. Um, the book of Maranatha, I believe it's page 387, says that <clears throat> during the time that it takes from the cloud to read, uh, Jesus leaves the holiest, um, the holy place, most holy place, and to travel to where it's first seen in the east, which takes several days, she says, the, the wicked worship at the saints' feet. And um, I could have added a couple of other events in here. We have the special resurrection, the resurrection of those who have died in faith of the three angels' message, keeping the Sabbath, and are, they are raised here about the time of the close of probation and the, um, the deliverance of God's people. Um, those also who have persecuted God's people throughout the ages are raised as well. Um, and these are all things, we don't have time to do a whole study on each of these events, but it's all prophesied. Now, where are we? That's the question that we're trying to ask today. Where are we in the sequence of events? Um, it seems to me that it's very clear that we are beyond the time of any time prophecies. In other words, we're waiting for some certain events to take place. And I want to just, I just pulled up, a, uh, this was from a couple days ago, um, how the Francis Factor could up in 2016. We see, we see that um, um, there was another headline. I couldn't find it. I'd seen it a couple days ago. The headline was something like, um, if you want to win the White House in 2016, 
you better keep an eye on Francis's politics or policies. Um, very, very interesting um, discussion that's taking place here. So where are we? We're living in these last days. I believe we're living after the last of those time prophecies were to come to an end, 1844. I believe that very, very clearly is the case. And I want to share with you a couple of statements from the spirit of prophecy as we talk about that. Um, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6 says that there should be time no longer. If you'll just turn with me there in your Bible, because we're going to spend just a couple minutes thinking about this as we talk about where we're at in the stream of time. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6 um, and 7. And by the way, again, how to compress a, a whole class or two into, into 30 seconds. Um, Revelation chapter 9, you, you have the uh, study of the trumpets, okay? And you have specific, specifically towards the end of Revelation chapter 9, you have the fifth and sixth trumpet. Those those trumpets include time periods, okay? Early Adventists understood them to represent a time period. Um, well, the sixth trumpet came to an end in, um, in August 11, 1840. And um, there was an Adventist ex or Milleritus expositor by the name of uh, Josiah Litch who came to the conclusion that something significant in the Muslim world was going to, in the Arab world, was going to take place on August 11, 1840. In fact, he, did, he prophesied the collapse of the, the Ottoman Empire. Um, Turkey would, would, um, would, would, would fall. Well, in fact, um, it took, of course, several, several days for news to travel in those, those years. But um, when the newspaper articles and the news came to America, it was found that, in fact, on August 11, the, the Ottoman Empire had applied for protection from its enemies. He, they had applied, they had gone to the, um, with papers of, of um, not sort of resignation, but applying for re for protection from the, at the French embassy, they had asked for the European powers to protect them from their enemies. In essence, um, surrendering their sovereignty. Now, if you were to ask a Turkish historian today, did Turkey ever surrender its sovereignty? Of course, they will say no. But the Millerites saw this. I mean, this had been published in the newspapers, Josiah Litch's predictions. And nobody challenged it back then, I can tell you that. And the book Great Controversy, Ellen White affirms, in my view, she clearly affirms this interpretation of the, of the trumpets when she says the events exactly fulfilled the predictions. Okay? So I believe that the sixth trumpet came to an end in August 11, 1840. I think that's a clear affirmation of the spirit of prophecy. So in the beginning of the seventh angel now, uh, Revelation 10 is now talking about the first days of the seventh angel. And notice with me in verse, um, well, we won't take the time because we don't have the time. The first five verses talk about the angel representing Jesus standing with one foot on the earth, one foot on the sea, a worldwide message, a book unsealed, a book open, a little book, and it's the book of Daniel, and this Millerite movement goes to the whole world. Now notice with me in verse 6. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now this is a, this is a fascinating prediction. Um, some people have said, well, this must be the end of the world, but yet the prophecy goes on. In the last part of the chapter, it says you must prophesy again for many nations and tongues and kings. So it doesn't seem it's talking about literal time. What we understand is this is talking about prophetic time. And um, not just prophetic as in a day for the year time, but prophetic time in general. It doesn't say 
It's, it's not talking about literal time. It's not talking about symbolic time. It's talking about um, prophetic time. Notice what Ellen White says. I'll share with you a couple of statements. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene before, between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of the Lord's coming. So no more time messages after 1844. In essence, you could say, friends, that 1844 marked the end of the calendar. Have you ever run to the end of the calendar and you pick up the page and it's not there? 1844 is the last page on the calendar, the prophetic calendar. Now, not that there's more, not more events, but as far as time, there's no more time prophecies. Let me continue on. This time, which the angel, this is, she's talking specifically about this verse. This time, which the angel declares with a solemn oath, is not the end of this world's history, neither a probationary time, but a prophetic time, which should precede the advent of our Lord. That is, the people will not have another message upon definite time. Now, what's definite time? Definite time is it's going to be this year. It's going to be next year. It's going to be five years. It's going to be on this date. That's all definite time. Now, is soon definite time? Is Jesus coming soon? Is that definite time? No, it's not definite time. And 1844 marked the end of definite time. After this period, reaching from 1842 to 1844, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. Of course, that's the uh, 2300 day prophecy. The Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and pre be proclaimed to the scattered children of the Lord, but it must not be hung on time. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time, but the third angel's message is stronger than time can be. I saw that this message can stand on its own foundation and needs not to strengthen needs not time to strengthen it, that it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness. Now notice with me back in Revelation chapter 10. Notice with me verse 7. There's going to be time no longer. In other words, no longer are God's people going to get the attention of the world through the preaching of time. But it says, in the days of the seventh angel, verse 7, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So the thesis that I want to present before you today is simply this, that in the last days, in the days we're living in today, off the calendar of prophetic time, living when Jesus' coming is soon, the message is not that there's certain events that has to take place. The message is a focus, as she said here on the third angel's message, the message of righteousness by faith, that the mystery of God should be finished. Now what's the mystery of God? This could be a whole study in itself, but I just want to point you to one verse that, um, that, I, will, uh, that I will refer to, and that's Colossians chapter 1. Um, Colossians chapter 1, I believe, gives us a key. By the way, there's a couple of mysteries. There's the mystery of iniquity, how sin could come about in the heart of a perfectly created being. That's a mystery of iniquity. If it's a mystery, we probably will never completely understand it, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a mystery. Um, but the mystery of God or the mystery of godliness is also a mystery. I'm glad there's two mysteries, not just one. The mystery of godliness is how that God could save man from his sins. Notice with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if I could just say this very succinctly, the message that we should be focused on is not, is not the time prophecies as much as we need to be aware of them. The message we need to be focused on today is how can Jesus be formed in us so that we can reflect His image, so that we can have His righteousness by faith, so that we can have His character as a light to, sh to lighten the whole earth with His glory. That's the focus 
of the last days. That's the focus of God's message for the last days. It should be. Now, some people have made some to do about the, the, the idea of 6,000 years of time prophecy. You know, Jesus is going to come exactly after 6,000 years. I'm just going to share with you two spirit of prophecy statements. That, because in a number of places she does say, you know, the second coming takes place after 6,000 years. Um, I, want to, I want to suggest that these are, she was giving them not as definite time. Are you with me? Not as a definite time prophecy, but as a generalization. And I'll say that because she also speaks of the 6,000-year mark as already having been passed. It's clear she's talking about it as in a general sense, not in a specific exactly 6,000-year sense. God endowed man with so great vital force that he has withstood the accumulation of disease brought upon the race for, of, in con consequence of perverted habits and has continued for 6,000 years, past tense. Um, another passage where she says, something similar. Um, the continual transgression of man for over 6,000 years has brought sickness, pain, and death as its result as we near the close of time, etc. So, in fact, I believe that God did not intend for us to be so long after 1844. I personally believe that God intended Adventism to be a one-generation movement. That's my belief. I believe He could have come before 1900. Um, and um, this is one of the statements where she says, It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be so long delayed, that His people should remain so many years in this world of sin and sorrow. But unbelief separated them from God. As they refused to do the work which He had appointed them, others were raised up to proclaim the message. In mercy to the world, Jesus delays His coming, that sinners may have an opportunity to hear the warning and find in Him a shelter before the wrath of God shall be poured out. So it really sounds from this passage that it's because of us that we're still here. In other words, God hasn't said it's going to be this long, it's going to be that long. Does God know? Of course He does. But there's no prophetic timeline out there that says it's going to take this long. The question is us. Are we going to cooperate? Are we going to work with Him? Had the purpose of God, again from the Union Comps record, um, 1998, had the purpose of God been carried out by His people in giving the message of mercy to the world, Christ would have come to the earth and the saints would ere this have received their welcome into the city of God. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, His people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action, 1901. God wanted to come a long time ago. There was no prophecy which prevented Him from coming a long time ago. It's us. It's God's people. And so let me just distill this in the few moments that I have left. If it's us, then we should, yes, be aware of the signs of the times and of the politics and of the papacy. But our greater focus should be on the mystery of Christ, the mystery of godliness being Christ formed within us, the hope of glory. And in fact, what gets me most excited that Jesus is coming soon is not what I see in Rome or in Washington. What gets me most excited to, with the hope that Jesus is coming soon is when I see the only thing that's keeping Him from not coming changing, when I see, God, when I see revival and reformation in His people. That is the major sign that we are near the last days. That's, that's, that's the focus. That's, that's, that's what it's got to be. I mean, the second coming is not held hostage by the Pope in Rome or by the President in Washington. It's delayed by us. God's people. And so we, we ought to be looking at the church. And when I say that, um, we ought to be looking at the way Daniel looked at it in Daniel chapter 9, right? Praying, realizing we're part of the problem and not 
um, not only um, the solution. Revelation chapter 14, if you'll notice with me, Revelation chapter 14 and verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, verse 14, um, speaks of the second coming taking place when the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 14, this is right after the, the three angels' message, which brings this about. It says, I looked and behold a white cloud. Upon the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time, of the har- for time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. By the way, this is, I would assume this is the same proclamation we read about in, a, in, in the next chapter. Um, when we, um, when we talk about the, uh, or, or a couple chapters later, when we talk about the, um, let him that is filthy be filthy still, him that is holy be holy still. Characters have been formed, sealed. They're not going to change your mind. Probation closes. When we talk about ripe here, it's not talking about any type of agricultural, literal ripening. It's talking about us as people. Our characters have been fully formed. And time comes for the second coming. Um, so Ellen White, Ellen White refers to it in this way in Christ's Objectus, page 69. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in the church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim him, claim them as his own. So where are we living? Where are we? We're living. I believe in the last days. Could Jesus come in the next few years? Politically, economically, socially, geographically, geopolitically, whatever you want to say, absolutely. The question really remains with us. Um, Are we going to be a part of a revival and a reformation that sweeps across this globe and not only gets the message to preach with a loud voice, like Jonah out there preaching to Nineveh. Very effective, a lot of wit, a lot of converts. But he, he's out there miserable under the dead gourd plant without the character of God. Are we going to be among those who are not only preaching three angels' message, but we also have the power of the fourth angel's message, the character of God that lightens the earth with his glory and is a part of this glass great movement? I want to be alive during that time. I want to be a part of that, people. And I hope you do as well. Let's just bow our heads as we close. Father in heaven, we've asked the question where we are, and we think that we understand as Adventists that we're living in the last days. And Lord, we we want to be living in the last days. We want to see you come. Father, we're not Adventists because we're afraid Jesus is coming soon. I pray that each one of us might be Adventists because we love Jesus and we hope that he's coming soon. And we're coming, we, we, we want to see our very best friend. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would just work in my heart to do a revival and reformation every day that will draw me closer to you, that I might reflect your character more and more fully to a world that is dying, to a world that is lost and wandering and landing at wrong airports, finding solutions that never satisfy. I pray, Father, that you would give each one of us the, the character of God that's formed in that crucible of trial and and praising you through suffering, that we might indeed be able to show to our neighbors and friends the very character of God, that the harvest of this earth might soon be ripe, and that you might come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.